Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai second there's always a breaking story what we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people the government concurs with the views of the black economic empowerment council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on black economic empowerment more explicit last may i asked constituencies at netle to discuss youth employment incentives i'm pleased that discussion have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles we are on an ambitious drive to industrialize to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country they don't have jobs and tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now the challenges were experience and the the level of education which i have channel africa follow channel africa on the social media platforms on facebook channel africa 1 on twitter at channel africa 1 and youtube on channel africa radio our website www.channelafrica.co.za channel africa from an african perspective africa rise and shine africa zora africa amka na unai
Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Ethiopia hopes for a much warmer relationship with the U.S., India has begun exporting COVID-19 vaccines to its South Asian neighbours. In economics news, Rwandans urge to consider shifting to electric vehicles. And in sports news, Malawi Super League suspended for three weeks. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. America's new president, Joe Biden, has called for an end to the uncivil war between the Democrats and Republicans. He concluded his inaugural speech by calling on Americans to confront the rise of white supremacy. This in a deeply divided country reeling from a battered economy and a raging coronavirus pandemic that has killed more than 400,000 Americans. Biden was speaking from the same spot that just two weeks ago was overrun by a pro-Trump mob stormed the capital. The new president pledged his full attention to efforts to rebuild and repair the U.S. We shall write an American story of hope, not fear, of unity, not division, of light, not darkness, a story of decency and dignity, love and healing, greatness and goodness. With purpose and resolve, we turn to those tasks of our time. Sustained by faith, driven by conviction. May God bless America and may God protect our troops. Thank you, America. Meanwhile, the outgoing U.S. President Donald Trump opted to leave Biden a letter instead of attending his successor's inauguration ceremony. Trump delivered his final speech at a military send-off at Joint Base Andrews before flying to his resort in Florida. He praised his administration's work during the pandemic and wished Biden's administration great success. We have the greatest economy in the world, and as bad as the pandemic was, we were hit so hard just like the entire world was hit so hard we got the vaccine developed in nine months instead of nine years or five years or ten years or it is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president i wish the new administration great luck and great success a goodbye we love you we will be back in some form have a good life we will see you soon Malian security forces have used tear gas to disperse a banned protest in the capital Bamako against France's military presence in the country. Organizer Adam Madar says police were deployed in riot gear to block around 1,000 protesters from gathering in Bamako's Independence Square. Mali's authorities had banned the protest because of the restrictions to slow down the spread of COVID-19. France, Mali's former colonial power, has 5,100 troops in the Sahel region, which has been a front line in the war against Islamist militancy for almost a decade. 
Protesters who broke a coronavirus curfew to continue riots for a fifth night have been warned by Tunisia's Prime Minister to stop their violence. More than 600 people, mainly between the ages of 14 and 15, have already been arrested after police clashes. The Prime Minister acknowledged their anger of about a range of economic and social hardships, but in a televised speech, the Prime Minister appeals to the protesters to stop the looting and the vandalism. And finally, South Africa's Health Minister Zulim Kize says it's not clear if there could be a third wave of the COVID-19 pandemic in the country. Mkize is urging the people to adhere to the COVID-19 regulations to avoid the surge of the pandemic. He says for now there is no indication whether there could be a third wave of the resurgence. He was speaking in Modimore in Limpopo province where he was conducting oversight. You know what we have learned from the last surge is that firstly that uh, you can always have a flare-up of COVID-19 that you may not necessarily even predict it. And you can never be able to accurately predict the size of the surge. Unless we take precautions, it's possible that it can come back anytime. We don't have a prediction that says there's a third wave coming. We have nothing to say it cannot come. I think what's important to send a message that as long as we take precautions, we could actually defer the resurgence again. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.10 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. As Joe Biden takes over the presidency of the United States, Ethiopia says it is hoping for a much warmer relationship with Washington than it has had during the administration of Donald Trump. The US and Ethiopia have been involved in several diplomatic rows, including over the Great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam that Ethiopia is constructing on the River Nile. This report by Coletta Wanjohi, in which you will also hear the voice of Ambassador Dina Mafti, spokesperson of the Ethiopian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Talks facilitated by the United States in 2019 between Ethiopia, Egypt and Sudan over the operation of Ethiopia's 6,000 megawatts dam on the River Nile hit a snag when Addis Ababa pulled out. It blamed President Trump's administration for failing to be neutral in the talks and opted for an African Union process which is currently being led by South Africa. In August last year, President Trump pulled over $130 million in aid to Ethiopia. Then in October last year, President Trump angered Addis Ababa by suggesting that Egypt might blow up Ethiopia's dam. The government here is now hoping that there will be a warmer relationship under President Biden. There was a big misunderstanding by Trump about the the situation, especially about the GERD. And he was misbriefed. We uh, we, we think he didn't get the right briefings by his um, aides. Now I think the, the Biden administration 
Some citizens here hope that Biden administration will mirror Barack Obama's tenure where many African countries felt they enjoyed respectful relations with the U.S. The incoming administration of Biden has already expressed concern over what it calls atrocities in Ethiopia's northern region. But Ethiopia, whose soldiers serve in peacekeeping missions in South Sudan and Somalia, remain a strategic ally for the United States, especially in stabilizing security in the Horn of Africa. The U.S. has mobilized over $37 million to support Ethiopia's electoral board to organize elections and trade between the two countries, whose total trade volume as of 2018 was valued at $1.8 billion, continues to grow. Colette Anjohi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. South Africa's Health Minister Dr. Zuelim Kize has expressed satisfaction with the Limpopo Health Department's COVID-19 response plan. Mkize visited the Chilizi Hospital outside Toyando as well as the local Tabani Mall, which has been described as a super spreader location. The minister also visited the Waterberg district Pimani Baloi, compiled this report. I work at the clinic as a PHC nurse, okay. but today I've come here to test the patient with signs and symptoms. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Mkize started his visit to the Chirizino Hospital by interacting with a nurse at the hospital's COVID-19 screening tent, located just at the gate. The hospital currently has two confirmed COVID-19 patients with about 20 who are being treated as they await their results. Doctors at the hospital told Mkize that they often wait up to five days for test results. Taken on the 15th, the results are not yet No, did you follow up? The doctor followed it up. We're still having one who's taken on the 13th, the results are not yet There's the bit of a backlog. Dr. Armando Sanchez Canal from the ICU ward says as the numbers keep surging, they need more high care beds. We are really under pressure. You can see it. We, we wish we could have more capacity yes. in terms of high care and ICU beds specifically. Yeah. We are still forced to nurse patients who will need a high care or ICU in the general world because of the shortage of high care and ICU beds and I believe that is still uh, affecting a lot in terms of the fatality rate when we cannot actually take patients who need high care to high care and patients who need ICU to ICU. Health MEC Dr. Pupira Matuva says top of the list of challenges that they've raised with the minister is securing funds for temporary relief staff. We're at a stage wherein a number of people who are infected are getting sick and they are requiring medical attention. So the support visit by the minister will at the same time be able to be used as a monitoring tool and we're hoping that where there are any challenges we'll be able to raise with the, with the minister so that they can be that intervention so that some of the issues we can raise them with treasury so that we can be able to resolve them and resources are freed for us to be able to deal with COVID-19. Minister Mkize says he expects Limpopo's confirmed cases to start declining as movement into the province that happened over the festive season period has started easing. So we have seen this is a classical case <clears throat> of a, you know, a festive season driven surge or resurgence. And this uh, has actually 
been linked to the influx of people coming back from wherever they are working, largely Gauteng, and getting into the uh, province, which is largely rural. Mkize says he is pleased to have seen for himself that the situation is under control. The main concern that we wanted to have a look at was whether the province was coping, because we have seen the uh, uh, case fatality rate increasing. And so uh, we have at least got the uh, report that indicates uh, how at this point, uh, with the, despite the pressure, we have not breached our levels of beds that have been provided. Uh, we therefore uh, have to continue to be uh, you know, very vigilant. Mkize ended his visit to the Vembe district at the Tabani Mall. Meanwhile, the latest figures released showed that the death toll in the province increased by 232, bringing the total to 977. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Aburengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9, and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netler to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. It's 7.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. India has begun exporting COVID-19 vaccines to its South Asian neighbours with the first doses reaching the Maldives and Bhutan on Wednesday, officials said in Delhi. The humanitarian exercise began as 630,000 health workers took the first shots in four days since the world's largest inoculation drive kicked off in India. Ranasen has more. Vaccine shipments will also reach Bangladesh, Nepal, Myanmar and the Seychelles this week itself. 
and foreign affairs expert Shriram Chawlia hoped India would also export vaccines to countries in Africa and Latin America. A lot of countries in Africa are also looking forward to Indian vaccines. Our meningitis, our HIV retroviral cocktails, all those have worked miracles in Africa. You know, they game changers for public health in these countries. So I think this is a huge opportunity. I think Prime Minister Narendra Modi uh, sounded the the bugle very early. He said whatever scientific know-how we have is going to be shared with the whole world. Several countries have reached out to India for vaccines and Foreign Minister S.J. Shankar in recent comments to a wire service said Delhi will not walk away from its global commitments. A number of countries are in touch with us. I myself have spoken in the last few days quite a few foreign ministers on this. And what we are telling them is, look, this is the first month. The production is now coming into stream. There's a certain amount of stock taking going on. We will get clarity pretty soon on what our own consumption is going to be. And we will keep our, our global role very much. And Siegel Asmon, who heads the global healthcare service, said she had full faith in India, which produces almost half of the world's vaccine supply, mostly for low-income nations. I believe in India because India has brought facts to the table for so many years. India has published clinical trials results for many years, is a big partner in clinical literature. India has great doctors, great hospitals, great capabilities. It has its challenges, absolutely. Accessibility has been an issue for some. Affordability is something that needs to be handled. But India has great medical capabilities and has been participating greatly to the development of, of the medical world and cure and absolutely to vaccines. Officials said India will also help to train personnel involved in the vaccine rollout in all the neighboring countries so that no one is left behind. India has really truly shown out as a pioneer and uh, stood out for the world. Latin America beat Africa, a lot of SARC group of countries. They don't vaccine manufacturing capability. No one is safe till everyone is safe. So we must break the chain of transmission and our strongest link in breaking the transmission is the weakest link. Unless we don't have or up to 50% coverage all over the world by end of 2021, this may spill over into the next year too. That was Sanjeev Bagai, a public health expert who believed India would play its part to help nations stay ahead of the pandemic. It's 7.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. The United Nations is deeply concerned by the worsening humanitarian crisis and escalating violence forcing thousands to flee in Mozambique's Cabo Delgado province. More than 565,000 people have fled their homes and villages due to attacks by non-state groups. Last December, UN regional directors for Eastern and Southern Africa visited the country to assess the plight and needs of displaced populations as well as of host communities. Joining us on the line is Lola Castro, regional director of the UN World Food Programme in Southern Africa and the Indian Ocean states. Lola, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Lola, and I hope you're good too. Now, what was your impression of the situation in Cabo Delgado? Talk us through what you witnessed. 
The situation that we saw when we were in Cabo Delgado, we went to Pemba, to Anquabe, Anquire districts in the province of Cabo Delgado with the other colleagues, regional directors of the UN. What we saw was really devastating, Lulu. I can tell you, when you see the thousands of people displaced, especially women and children, without having adequate uh, shelter, adequate facilities, water, sanitation, uh, not enough uh, food and services. We are really, as United Nations, together with the government of Mozambique, uh, working and the civil society, trying our best to both uh, provide these people with minimum services and, and really overcome now the very difficult rainy season situation that has started already at the end of December. Now, I'm sure being on the in on the ground there, you know, you've interacted with different people and come across different stories. What is in in terms of what you've seen? What can you tell the people um, with regards to how that impacts you as an individual? Yeah, the, the the people we talk to many many people, especially women and uh, and also men men, of course, and, and basically for them first, they had to flee their districts in a, in a haste. So basically, they brought nothing. They had only the clothes they were wearing, and initially they had been hosted by the very hospitable uh, local communities. So you could see in some places a house with 60, 70 people living together, some five or six families that had been hosted by one family that had in the in the areas that are not affected by the attacks. So the, the population basically asked us for the basics, and, and we have been really providing them uh, some services, like, for example, uh, related to food, that, that is, as you know, together with water and shelter, the main priorities in this situation of emergency. We reach uh, around 400,000 of these 565,000 in the month of December and November as well. So what we need now, basically, and the population asks, is to please help them to to be able to also uh, settle themselves, uh, start uh, producing something by themselves. Uh, and, and that's urgent as well. It's urgent to give them seeds and to give them tools to be able to produce something. Most of them are coming from agricultural fisheries background. Many are from the coastal areas, the islands of the of the coastal uh, beautiful islands of Cabo Delgado. And, um, and then it's our obligation. So at this moment, what we are aiming, and the government of Mozambique launched uh, a humanitarian appeal for $254 million to support 1.3 million people, because it's not only the displaced, it's also the host communities that are hosting them that are affected. And they are not only in Cabo Delgado, in fact, they are also going to the southern province of Cabo Delgado, Nampula, and the western province to Cabo Delgado, Niasma province in northern Mozambique, all of each. Now, Lola, the UN delegation met with government officials in Maputo. What is the significance of this meeting, and was was it a fruitful meeting? Yes, we had very fruitful meetings, both with authorities in Cabo Delgado, the governor and the secretaries of state of Cabo Delgado province. Both of them are really with the district administrators, which, in fact, many of them were women as well, were trying to provide lunch in the districts to resettle these people that were crowding in, in villages and cities and urban centers. You know, Cabo Delgado has a 
the, a, very chronic, a number of chronic situations like uh, cholera comes every year. And when the rains come, you cannot have all these people living in very crowded conditions. So they are trying their best to resettle the people in, in new areas, and they have allocated land both for housing as well as for fields. Uh, they were trying. They were starting. It's still a big, massive task to do, and, and the international community were trying to support on that. In Maputo, we also met with a number of ministers, including the Minister of Foreign Affairs, as well as the Minister of Agriculture, uh, who and others who tried who who advise us that they really will are asking the support for the international community. At the same time, they launch the humanitarian response plan, as I mentioned, and and really the the appeal for urgent support to augment. But also, it's very clear that the emergency and the urgency is not only for humanitarian response and saving the life of these people during this critical moment when they're displaced and they have nothing, really nothing, uh, but also to build their livelihoods and their resilience to, 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 to future shocks. So that's a very critical issue and, and also to create a little bit more development, especially in all the border areas because these areas have been very far away from development for many years. Now, Lola, with the crisis uh, that's been seen in Mozambique, why is there not enough attention to what's taking place in Mozambique? Uh, Look, uh, it's very difficult these days to really compete with big emergencies in the world, as you know. Uh, There are too many related not only to conflict, as this one, but related to COVID, we have seen a serious economic downturn in the world. And, and, and there are so many areas in the world and countries in the world that are appealing for support. And, and Mozambique somehow remains not a high priority for, because it, it's difficult to explain why, but uh, this is why we're raising the alert. This is why we went there as regional directors. This is why we met with the government, the civil society, the people themselves to really make that plea heard by everybody. And, and we know the Sadiq region countries are supporting, and we know everybody supporting the government and the populations of Mozambique. But uh, to be honest, Lulu, we really need to do much more and much more rapidly and be more bold in passing the message of the situation of these people in Mozambique. And what's the UN's plan of action going forward? Yes, our, our action is uh, very clear. It's working together with authorities and with the civil society and all actors that are working with these people to ensure they, they, they at least while this place, they get resettled, they, they have minimum standards of living, and, and they have social services. We, they need health education. Women and children need also nutritional support, especially with so many pregnant women in the area. And these women will deliver very soon, and the children should be not already at birth and they're nourished. We really need to scale up for WSP welfare program, the food distributions, but also to support with the food for assets, basically supporting with the food or the cash to create assets for these people building their livelihoods back, be agriculture with FAO and UFAD or, or be fisheries or big commerce because some of them are also traders. So really we need to act rapidly for saving lives, as I say, but also to to give them a livelihood that is um, possible for them to have uh, have back what they lost, at least a part of it.
Lola, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much, Lolo, for having us. That's Lola Castro, Regional Director of the World Food Programme for Southern Africa and the Indian Ocean States, joining us on the line. It's six. It's 7.31 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. In the headlines, America's new president, Joe Biden, has called for an end to the uncivil war between the Democrats and Republicans. He concluded his inaugural speech by calling on Americans to confront the rise of white supremacy. Malian security forces used tear gas to disperse a banned protest in the capital, Bamako, against France's military presence in the country. And South Africa's health minister, Zulim Kize, says it's not clear if there could be a third wave of the COVID-19 pandemic in the country. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Anne. Disinformation, superstition, rituals and funerals are considered to be among the super spreaders of the deadly coronavirus in South Africa's Eastern Cape province. With some villages conducting as many as 10 funeral services in a week, chances of contracting the virus are much higher. It's also emerged that a number of families have buried wrong bodies after a mix-up at funeral parlours. Now traditionists want a review of COVID-19 regulations to accommodate families who want to view bodies. Ngululegunyembezi reports. For centuries, rituals like a night vigil and viewing of the body have been the norm and regarded as a dignified way to bid farewell to their loved ones. But the outbreak of the pandemic has forced villagers to make compromises. However, many families still insist on viewing the body due to a number of bodies being processed before delivery. Traditional leaders say families must be afforded an opportunity to identify the body at a mortuary. Condoleezza Provincial Chairperson Chief Muelo Nongonyana has urged the government to come up with a strategy to accommodate families in viewing the bodies. They will talk to nobody else. They're not going to talk to any government or any leader somewhere. They will talk directly to the families concerned. Why are you not burying me? These are real. And we do have real cases. A person from KwaZulu-Natal was nearly buried in the Eastern Cape. And a body in the Eastern Cape was buried in KwaZulu-Natal. They had to be exhumed. It is believed some families exhume bodies to remove the plastic covering before the repairing. Traditionalist Dr. Nobuzolom Dende however argues that a body separated from the soul cannot be suffocated by layers of plastic. I don't think there is suffocation because when the soul leaves the body, goes to the spiritual world, that's our belief. And the body, with me, wrapping the body with the plastic for health purposes to, to avoid the spread of the disease is excellent. What, what I advised is that at least just to identify the body, the side of the plastic that is covering the face should be transparent. Funeral parlor owners like Otto Duru says it's critical to enforce COVID-19 regulations. 
Traditionally, I understand, you know, uh, the outcry of the people, especially in the Eastern Cape. We do understand. I'm Kosa. I'm also doing rituals. I'm also appeasing to the ancestors. It's not nice, you know, to bury your loved one, especially the father or the mother of the house, and you take the body from mortuary straight to the graveyard without taking the body or the coffin to the crawl where we appease and talk to the to the to the ancestors traditionally it's believed that diluting tradition and rituals during this pandemic will collapse many family structures they want regulations to be adjusted allowing for the safe viewing of bodies adding to the risk of funerals which often exceed the allowed number of mourners i'm gulagunyembezi eastern cape South Africa's aid organization, Gift of the Givers, has been instrumental in the fight against COVID-19 through the country. It has spent over 200 million rands since the start of the pandemic. The organization has been lauded for its effective interventions, assisting communities and government entities. With the coronavirus infecting thousands, government is often accused of dragging its feet in delivering much-needed services. Lubabalotata has more. The Gift of the Givers is making a big footprint in the Eastern Cape. The organization has donated personal protective equipment, provided oxygen to hospitals and food parcels to the needy, among other things. It has also taken initiatives to address shortages of key health staff in the Nelson Mandela Bay Metro. CEO of the organization is Imtias Soliman. Currently in the Eastern Cape, besides the metro here, we're busy supplying PPEs to 40 hospitals. And everyone has been calling with desperation. We need PPEs. And we've already done 17 in the last five days. We're still going to do another 23. In addition to that, the other big crisis in Eastern Cape is water. Our teams are drilling right now in Perry. You know, tomorrow we, we will be delivering 1,000 food parcels and opening six bowls in Perry. And we've been drilling in other places, in Adelaide, in Bedford. We're going to Cromie, Kala, uh, the, uh, the Fort Beaufort, Ellis. And of course, food parcels and hunger. Those are the main crises following in the Eastern Cape, and we're dealing with all of that and also fodder for animals. The Bishop Hospital in the Buffalo City Metro is among the health facilities that received a major boost from the gift of the givers, with equipment ranging from hospital beds and oxygen machines to personal protective equipment. This week, the organization also handed over doctor's accommodation facilities valued at 3 million rand. CEO of Bishop Hospital, Pumla Mnyanda, says staff shortage remains a challenge. Challenge of staff is still there, it's standing. And then, but, but, but it's not critical. The only critical thing we had is doctors, which we, we, we had the problem in literally recruiting doctors. Advisor to the Eastern Cape Premier, Dr. Toby Lembengasha, says they appreciate the efforts by the gift of the givers in the fight against the pandemic. The Premier has personally you know, um, um, thanked the, 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 the gift of the givers. And as you know, the gift of the givers have really been one of those uh, philanthropic uh, organizations that have really understood the plight of poor people. The organization is set to make more donations to various hospitals across the country. I am Lubabalo Dada in the Eastern Cape. It's 7.38 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. 
Our body positivity and the feeling of being comfortable in your own skin can be tough to master, especially for women who are so often assaulted with unrealistic body standards from an impressionable age, from airbrush billboards and catwalks to window displays. These expectations of perfection often place societal pressure to fit the mold of what a healthy body weight should be. Jim Chain, Virgin Active, supports women's healthy weight day, which is observed today, which acts as a reminder for women to celebrate their body and to think about what what healthy weight means for their unique characteristics or circumstances. To discuss this further, we are now joined on the line by Nikki Cockcroft, a Global Chief Marketing and Technology Officer at Virgin Active South Africa. Nikki, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Morning, Lulu. Thank you for having me. Now, Nikki, let's let's reflect more on the significance of observing this day, especially for women. Absolutely, it's such a it's such a big day and the right moment to have it, um, given how everybody's feeling and what we've been through and the level of body shaming that that is taking place in across social media platforms. Um, our purpose at Virgin Active is to inspire people to live an active life, but the main p- reason for that is because. Uh, an active you is a healthier, happier you. And I guess the main outcome of this is self-love. We do all of this so that we can look in the mirror and feel satisfied with what we've got and happy. And and that's, that's more important than anything else, what you think of you, not what others think of you. Now, what does the concept of healthy body weight mean in the realm of fitness and exercise? I know for a fact that when you exercise, uh, you feel lighter and you feel, as you mentioned, a lot happier. Absolutely. I mean, exercise has many, many other benefits besides its contribution to a healthy body weight. Um, It helps you tackle, you know, levels of anxiety, deal with depression, has cognitive and, and physiological benefits, social benefits. But I think when we're talking about a healthy body weight, I mean, different people have different measures, but I like to think of it quite simply without trying to work out complex things like body mass index. I think of it as balance, and it's about energy balance. The amount of energy or calories you get in from food and drinks needs to be balanced with the energy that your body uses for daily activities, breathing, digesting, or exercise. And it's about that balance over a period of time, regardless of the fad or the diet of the moment. It always comes down to that balance of what you, what you take in um, in terms of food and what you burn in terms of energy and activeness. And it gets us about finding that balance over a period of time that helps maintain a healthy body weight. But your size of body does not determine the health of somebody's body. I was just going to get into that because a lot, a lot of misconception is uh, for everyone to be fit, you have to be small, you have to lose weight. And, uh, you know, big bone people are generally put under pressure where, you know, they want to fit the norm. Absolutely. But there's nothing to say that a, that a super skinny is a healthy person. Um, so the argument could work both ways. I think, you know, what we have to accept and what we know is that we're all different. We have different genes. Our makeup is different. Our metabolism, metabolism sorry, is different. Our bone structures are different. So anybody can be fit and healthy, big or small. It doesn't necessarily mean because you the size zero model that that makes you a walking health person. It's not at all. 
Now, how does body positivity come into the debate of celebrating all shapes and body types? I think body positivity comes from within. Um, there's, it's about understanding our own makeup and our own goals and achieving our goals and giving us something to focus on. It's not about, I think it's moving on from what other people think of us to what we think of ourselves. When we look in the mirror, we are the ones who need to feel happy and satisfied. And it's really difficult. We live in a very, very competitive place and, you know, social media is right. We only see the pictures that are airbrushed and different apps have made them look better. And you look at that and think, oh, you know, if only I could lose this weight, if only I could be thinner, smaller. But it's not possible because we're all different. So it's about looking in the mirror and saying, this is me. This is my, this is my healthy balance. This is what feels good for me. And not comparing yourself to others. And really shutting out the nonsense and fat phobia. It's unnecessary. It's mean. It's, you know, um, I, have, I have two daughters. Well, I have four children and two daughters. And I won't let them be body shamed. They both come from me and they both look entirely different and have different shapes. And, and th- that says it all. But I want them to feel happy with what they've got and continue to maintain an active, healthy life. But they're not going to be the same size. Totally different. And, uh, you know, we see it all the time where you have, whether it's uh, siblings, uh, a group of friends, and, uh, you know, everyone is different in their own way, different shapes, different body types. And, uh, you know, because some with uh, weight will probably look older than the tiny ones. Um, You know, there's always that debate. But how do how do women um, sort of, uh, not only women, you know, because men also go through the same challenges that women do it's just that they are a lot better at hiding them absolutely and they're not they're not as good as talking about it no they're not it's, it's shameful if you mention something like weight uh which is silly but everybody's affected by it you're absolutely right there's no exceptions to the rule and everybody should have the same goal of about feeling healthy and active it shouldn't be about the weight on the scale or you know what your hip size is it's those are just inputs and measures to understand your own body so that you can compare yourself with yourself and your own improvements and your own environment. I think it's really to, to maintain a healthy body weight, whatever that is for you, it's always good, personally, I feel, about setting goals for yourself. Set small, realistic, achievable goals. You know, don't, don't overstretch or overreach or try to be like somebody else. Just set, set goals that will help you get there. Also, I think it's important that you, you find your tribe, you know, different friends or colleagues or whether that's a personal trainer in the gym. Uh, we have lots of online communities that drive uh, for women and for men that help them talk about real, real problems. You know, um, my body doesn't like carbs. My body does like carbs but doesn't like protein. Um, I've got an injury in my knee. I can't get going, etc. So find your tribe and, and, and use a community of people, of like-minded individuals that are supportive. Don't, don't go to the one who makes you feel bad about yourself. That's the one to avoid. <laughs> and unfortunately, very often in our life, those are our closest friends. But definitely, definitely. We it's need time to, to be filter. real. Yeah. And parents, parents. I think parents play a massive role in how we feel about ourselves, upbringing, how, um, you know, how, how, we, how we looked at food in the household mm. and what we considered that. And that is a massive role to play. So you have a lot of baggage. Naturally, we all have it growing up. Um, about food and health and what that looks like. And that influences how we're going to go tackle things.
Mm. But let that baggage go and find like-minded people and get motivated by the things that motivate you. I do some really cheesy things, ridiculous things, like I have on my screen tab on my phone when I don't have a picture of one of my children, I have my goal on the wallpaper and I just put it there on my phone. So every time I kind of pick up my phone, it's the first thing I see what my goal is. So I'm just reminded to constantly be aware of what I'm trying to achieve with with whatever that may be. Maybe it's eating less chocolate or going for an extra <laughs> walk or an extra 15 minutes, whatever it is. It just makes reminds me of what my goal is. Um, my sister writes hers on the mirror. So when she looks at it, she says, this is what's going to make me feel good. Going out and do 15 minutes of exercise three times a week or joining the FitFab, Bridge and Active Community or any of those types of things. So I think finding your tribe, setting goals is important. The third thing is just start. I think we are a nation <laughs> that is of so true. Procrastination. Yeah. All of us. Yeah. I don't think, look, I mean, there are exceptions, obviously, but they're mm. very few. And, um, you know, we'll find every excuse in the book. I exercise in the morning. And if I don't, I often start the day saying, I'll exercise this afternoon. Mm. By the time I've got to this afternoon, I've made sure, like, work has extended well beyond. I've found everything else in the world to do so that, oh, I ran out of time. <laughs> Nikki, we could go terrible. on the whole morning. And I think <laughs> my colleagues are also listening. Tabis is sitting here with me and thinking, this is so true. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. And that is uh, Nikki Cockcroft, a Global Chief Marketing and Technology Officer at Virgin Active South Africa, joining us on the line. Our economics update up next with Tabis Oluho. Good morning. The South African Reserve Bank's Monetary Policy Committee is expected to keep, rather, yes, to keep the key repurchase rate at its current 3.5% when it announces its decision this afternoon. Most economists say there hasn't been any significant changes in both growth and inflation outlook to warrant a change in rates. However, a smaller number of economists anticipate a rate cut. Last year, the bank projected a marginal contraction for 2020 of 8% and expected a third quarter rebound this year. But market analyst De Patrick Matidi expects the bank to revise these projections downward due to the second wave of COVID-19. The Reserve Bank has repeatedly cautioned against over-reliant on monetary policy to stimulate growth. Last year, it cut the repo rates by a cumulative 300 basis points in the face of hard lockdown to deal with the first wave of COVID-19. The central bank has reiterated that growth and unemployment can only be lifted by significant structural reforms. The Africa Continental Free Trade Area officially launched this month, giving Eswatini access to 1.3 billion consumers around the African continent has presented a wealth of opportunity for locally owned SMEs and large corporates. The AFCFTA aims to not only consolidate African trading activity with the rest of the world, but also to ease trade between nations on the continent creating a single market to encourage trade and economic integration amongst Africans across the continent. The agreement is also focused on facilitating further intra-African investment while also creating fertile markets to encourage international investors 
to enter African markets. The Rwanda Environment Management Authority has called upon the public and private institutions as well as individuals to consider shifting to electric vehicles and join the effort to beat air pollution. The group made the call when taking delivery of its first electric vehicle that will be used to support the institution's mandate of environmental protection. A charging station has also been installed at the Environmental Watchdog Office in Ekakiuri. The move is aimed to stimulate the demand of electric vehicles on the local market. It's a Channel Africa broadcasting from an African perspective. Our sports update up next with Figure Lingwati. And in this hour, we begin with rugby news. Oh, the former Rwanda national team coaches Eric Nishinyamana and Jean Baptiste Karyangana have tipped Amavubi players to defeat Morocco in the second match of Group C at the Total African Nations Championship Chant. And Rwanda will face Morocco on the 22nd of January at the Stade de la Reunification in Douala. Despite failing to score after several chances, the goalless draw against Uganda, the former Amavubi Rwanda coaches and players believe that the team is capable of defeating Morocco, who are the defending champions and favourites to win the competition. Morocco won their first match of the tournament against Togo 1-0 and Rwanda's Amavubi's best chance finish came in 2016 when they hosted the tournament and were eliminated in the quarterfinals by the Dear Congo. Following clearance from the Minister of Sports, Culture and Heritage, the 2021 Kenya Rugby Cup season will kick off on February 27th to run for 11 matches. As the norm, the top four teams will qualify for the semi-finals slated for the 22nd of May with the finals scheduled to May 29th. The season will first be preceded by the Kenya Cup qualifiers involving the top six teams. South Africa's women's national cricket team got their campaign off to a good start with a narrow three-run win in the first one-day international, the ODI against Pakistan women at the Hollywood Birds, Kings Mid Stadium in Durban. After Pakistan won the toss and elected to bowl first, the prettiest were restricted to a modest 2,209 in their 50 overs with Marizan Cup and Laura Volvat, the standard batters with scores of 37 and 40 respectively. Rwanda's men's national basketball team has started training in preparation for the upcoming FIBA Basket 2021 qualifiers window scheduled for the 17th to the 21st of February in Tunisia. Rwanda interim head coach Henry Mwinuka has named his 22-man provisional squad. He will then trickle it down to a squad of 12 who will travel to Tunisia for the showpiece. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutu Ramagaza, technical producer Didimalo Makau, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. I'll take us to the top of our folding news is Niniola with a song titled Maradona. Goodbye and keep safe. Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. 
1700 hours show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za